This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi folks, just a minute before we get on to Land of the Lustrous 11. I'm going to be watching Land of the Lustrous episode 12 live on stream for the very first time. So if you're catching this video within the first couple of weeks that it's out, you will have an opportunity to watch me watch it for the very first time and immediately try to analyze and make sense of it on stream. That will be July 19th at twitch.tv slash nearly on red. We will start at what is the usual time, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. GMT, whatever that works out to for you wherever you are in the world. That stream will also end with a little teaser about what our first ever content campaign will be about. So again, July 19th on my Twitch channel, a little way of celebrating reaching the end of the backlog. And I had to hold this video back until I could give you a date for that. So I'll see you then. Today we are discussing the penultimate episode of Land of the Lustrous and reflecting on how it sets us up for the finale. This is the Not Quite Daily Show, and I am your shaggy host, Theta. I rather regret waiting to film these, as lockdown means that I am months overdue for a haircut. It should be clear why I always keep it short. But do you know what actually is short? Today's speculation section, counter to what I kind of assumed last time. This episode pulled a fast one on me by introducing a new character with little to go on. It's not the only fast one this episode pulled though, so let's begin. Last time, we talked about the horror-esque techniques the show utilized in presenting the being that we now know as Shiro. This episode leverages that feeling of hostility and threat for another purpose, humor. Invoking an emotional delta for comic relief is especially effective for works which are not mostly humorous. Full-blown comedies can build jokes on top of jokes and rely on an already tickled audience to find each new bit even funnier. A more dramatic show like Land of the Lustrous, though, can't drop a random bit of wackiness in the middle of things without it seeming out of place. To make their comedic relief moments count, they need to leverage the unexpected departure from what we think is about to happen to what will actually happen. The first big tonal shift in this episode is crafted around going for maximum humorous impact and helps separate us from the high tension of the previous episode. The unlooked-for solution of Red Alex seems to save the day, and yet the divided creature is reforming into still another threat. So, Bort and Fos prepare themselves to face the danger once again, and the danger looks like this. One thing that both comedy and horror have in common is how much they benefit from the unexpected. Even Bort cannot bring herself to harm these balls of floof, so once they spread out over the island and the other gems encounter them, well, it no longer looks like quite the threat to their existence. They have been invaded, 
by cuteness, and our gems are right back to schoolgirl mode, alternating between squeeing over the fluffy interlopers and trying to track them down. But that just sets up a reversal of the tone when they complete the task. Shiro reforms and begins attacking them again, and so the relaxed tension seemed like misdirection. Yet even into that, Fos's diversionary tactics end up becoming humorous as a counternote to the renewed threat. Yet even that gets reversed when Fos is captured, and Shiro appears to bolt towards Kongo on the attack. Up, down, up, down with the tension or humor, yanking our tonal impressions back and forth until the Kongo-Shiro encounter. We then have what seems like a replay of the first thing that caused the tone shift this episode. Shiro will go from threatening attacker to pet doggy all over again, complete with shaking and sitting and wanting chin scratches. But just as the first reveal of the dog-like nature signaled a shift out of the tone which preceded it, this encounter also sets up a change for our episode. With Kongo on the scene and Shiro shown to be a pet in truth, it would seem all the tension evaporates from the conflict that Shiro seemed to represent. But into this space, Kongo makes the comment that creates an entirely new tension. Fos just happens to be close enough to hear him, and he doesn't know that she's there and is thus not on guard when he asks Shiro about the missing hand. Fos was naive and ignorant of many things starting out, but even from the beginning we could tell that she was astute. Hearing what Kongo says and the way he says it immediately shakes her up. She understands there is something unexpected but quite significant behind this exchange. It comes immediately before the mid-episode break and is given an extra tinge of mystery by playing just a bit of the percussion sound effect that we have come to associate with the Lunarians. Just as veering into humor was funnier because of leading to it with high tension, so this revelation becomes all the more ominous due to its contrast with the whole bit of Shiro obeying Kongo's commands. What Kongo says, and how Fos tries to make sense of it, is thus the thing I assumed would have to happen this episode, that the outcome of the conflict with Shiro would create a jumping off point for whatever narrative thread carries us into the finale. We'll talk about it at length, but there is an expected narrowing of the possibilities that makes sense as we move into next episode. This is an ongoing series, and so those adapting must pick a good place to stop. It's not the finale for the story overall. To give the audience a satisfying breakpoint, some of our threads must be drawn closer together and woven into something that feels a bit like completion. This is why it was easy to guess that Daya and Bort's unresolved relationship would come back on stage in episode 10, as leaving it in limbo as we did in episode 3 gives us a sense of dissatisfaction, of something incomplete. Trying to ensure we understand all the things that may unite in the near future is thus the hope of this 11th episode. So let's get started. We did not have any continuation of Daya's goal that we talked about last time, the drive to be a real diamond that was likely behind her reckless attack on Shiro. However, since she's been put back together, there is renewed hope that she and Bort will patch things up, continuing their heart-to-heart -heart from last episode's cliffhanger. 
What we have instead is a new goal for Fos, sort of. I'm calling it Find the Truth, and it encompasses everything Fos will do in pursuit of understanding more about the Lunarians and their link to Congo, and wherever else that may lead her. Considering we have one episode remaining, it's probably a safe bet she won't learn everything she wants to know by the time this season concludes. But it is already influencing her behavior, as we saw her inform Congo that she had her own matters to pursue and promptly stood at the edge of the island waiting for Lunarians to come for her. In typical Fos fashion, it has not gone as she anticipated just yet, but suffice to say that ten days of waiting won't be enough to dissuade her. Not the Fos who came out the other side of this past winter. I have said for a few episodes that I expected something about our final arc to highlight the way Fos' characterization has changed. In light of this new purpose, I therefore assume that whatever awaits Fos in her pursuit will test the resolve and purpose and understanding that she has accumulated through these past 11 episodes. Thus, when I said this was a new goal for Fos, sort of, what I meant that it was only sort of new. The actual inciting incident for the entire story was Kongo giving her the task of creating the encyclopedia. She was compelled to seek out new information, and quite against her own wishes. Her idleness kept her in ignorance of the world, and that ignorance perpetuated her idleness. Once forced out of this comfortable stasis, she begins to learn, and not the natural history or the scientific data that she may have imagined. She learns things that she probably should have known, and foremost among them was the truth of Cinnabar. She knew the danger of her only, and initially wanted no part of approaching her even if it aided the new task. Yet after realizing Cinnabar's situation and being rescued by her, Fos is irreversibly changed. As she said in the aftermath when asked if she's forgotten anything, I don't really know yet, but I definitely won't forget today. Once she also learns of Cinnabar's despair, the cumulative effect of all this new understanding prompts her to action, and she makes the promise that has driven so many other behaviors, led to so many other instances of her seeking more experiences and more information. As her ignorance was pushed aside, so too did she push aside her idleness. Thus, in one sense, the entire journey of Fos to this point has been in service of this goal, though she was unaware of her direction. There was no conscious choice to expand her understanding as an end unto itself, it was always the side effect of something else she was pursuing. Going to talk to Cinnabar, going to visit Daya because of her new technique, going into the ocean with Ventricosis, joining the fight with Amethyst, joining Antarcticite on the winter tasks, learning to use her arms and fight the Lunarians with Congo, teaming up with Bort. None of those were actions she undertook to learn, and yet from all of them her learning expanded. Now at last, that learning itself will be part of what drives her. It strikes me that it's probably no coincidence, then, that we end this episode with the awakening of someone who, in Fos's own words, practically knew everything. The Lunarians haven't shown up with the answers she is seeking, but now she has a new direction to pursue. The old Fos may have had little interest in asking pointed questions of Podparacha, but it seems reasonable to presume that the Fos of right now won't let the opportunity pass. The timing is rather perfect. One thing worth mentioning in this section, too, is that Fos's primary goal gets relegated to the back burner for now. It's not that she suddenly doesn't care about Cinnabar, but Fos realizes how little she understands about key parts of their existence. 
How can she even presume to solve Cinnabar's situation if she doesn't comprehend her own? She's made no progress on finding a new purpose, and she knows it. That really uh, dictated how their last two encounters have gone. This time, though, she pushes her discomfort aside to ask for Cinnabar's input. This need to find the truth is more pressing than her embarrassment, and so I think we can guess that she will pursue this first before she ever shifts Cinnabar back into first priority. If nothing else, it will be a means toward that end. I also want to touch on Kongo's goals in broad terms, which we'll do in lieu of giving him a section in characterization. While it's not surprising to have his connection to Lunarians further confirmed, it does give us a chance to re-examine the things that appear to be his goals in that light. Since Kongo has some pre-existing relationship with Lunarians, how do we judge his apparent goals of keeping the gems safe, or of finding them purpose, or attending to their well-being? Do we doubt the sincerity of his actions that led us to enumerate these goals? Are they all just a masquerade to cloak his real intent or his real allegiance? After all, he will pretend he doesn't know Shiro when it's so obvious that he does, and we know that he has kept knowledge of humans from the gems for some reason. All the gems except Fos had picked up on his possible connection, and yet it's something he must have never addressed in all this time, even as they are locked in a mortal struggle with these very Lunarians. Is it foolish to think these goals are authentic for someone who is dealing in deceit? Or can we flip that around and approach from the other direction? Assume that the goals are authentic, that he really wants to protect the gems and their well-being and find them purpose. From that perspective, the choice to obscure his connection to Lunarians must proceed from the belief that secrets are for the best. The nature of the truth could be harmful in a way we don't understand. It could be that if Kongo didn't care about the gems, then he would tell them all the details. And the same goes for the existence of humans and whatever it is that lies over that past. Keeping the truth from them may not be nefarious, it may be precautionary. It may be mercy. The exact same actions could be meant to harm or to help, depending entirely on whether Kongo's apparent goals are genuine or a facade. We've chosen them based on his actions rather than his words, so I'm inclined to believe that they are real for him, but I thought this was a good time to highlight the uncertainty that lies behind the things he does and says and doesn't say, as Fos herself is left off questioning the things that she has also taken for granted. After all, let us not fail to note that Kongo does not try to prevent or dissuade Fos from setting out to find the truth. He simply asks what she will do now, and apparently is leaving her to it. Cinnabar reveals that the other gems all suspect, but have simply decided to trust. Presumably, they have not even questioned. They accept and defer to Kongo's authority. But Fos has always been a little bit of a maverick by contrast, the only person we've seen that breaks the rules on purpose. What suddenly comes back to me is Kongo's comments in episode 1. Fos is not thrilled with the encyclopedia task and accuses Kongo of trying to trick her into it. Benito comments that Fos is just about the only one who would dare talk back like that, and yet rather than continuing that rebuke, Kongo says that it is just that frankness that is needed for the task. There is an implication that Fos's nature makes her especially suited for the gathering of information. She is someone who questions, who pushes at boundaries, who does not simply accept and obey. 
Fos may not just be the only gem who chooses to pursue the truth, she may be the only one who is even suited for it. Kongo recognized that upside to her nature when giving her the encyclopedia task. It gets very interesting if he guessed her inquiries would one day lead her along this path. In conflicts, let us address the one we added last time, the unknown new Lunarian and the threat it seemed to represent. This resolved in a way that defied expectations, to say the least. Um, I covered how it used the surprise to tone shift us once out of the sense of peril, and then again to shift us into the uncertainty that Fos wrestles with in the second half, so we won't reiterate all that. What I want to point out is that the notion I had last time to make this a separate conflict from the overall Lunarian threat ended up being a good choice. It's a lucky guess to be sure, like the accuracy is not the point. The point is that they are separate predicaments with separate resolutions, but that doesn't mean they aren't related. For one thing, Shiro coming to the island suggests that something is happening on the moon. Rutile puts this into words when addressing the Lunarian's absence in all the time Fos has been standing vigil. Shiro is not a new escalation of the Lunarian incursions. Rather, it seems like Shiro effectively escaped and ended up on the island solely for the purpose of reuniting with Kongo. I guess it's a good thing that this does represent some sort of new elite shock troop or something, but it highlights how little we understand. Why was Shiro in a position to be prevented, and why would they have wanted to prevent it? And to be frank, how did they prevent it, as Shiro seems way more powerful than any Lunarians we've run into before now? What then changed such that Shiro could leave at all? Is there a crisis on the moon? Did the Admirabilis finally manage to make a move to free their people? Is there civil war? Is intro-Lunarian conflict even a thing that exists at all? Ventricosis made the statement that Lunarians have no enemies of their own, but their lust for battle is never satiated. Does that have any bearing on the present? The fact that we know Shiro's appearance means something has changed, but we cannot begin to guess what changed, should accentuate how much we don't know about Lunarian society. But that's not a bad thing. Instead, the mystery surrounding them allows a little of the natural fear of the unknown to intensify the threats that they represent. We've gotten bits and pieces over time, the change in their tactics, the things that Ventricosis has shared, but it's their unpredictable and inscrutable qualities that amplify the sense of danger. I don't know how long or how successful Fosa's quest toward understanding will be, but demystifying the Lunarians will probably result in a commiserate reduction in how threatening they seem. The gems have been defending themselves against Lunarian incursions for over 2,000 years, and they seem no closer to any kind of resolution. If anything, the Lunarians appear to have gained the upper hand of late. For this overarching conflict to be resolvable, the balance has to tip in the other direction. Fos having the goal and seemingly the permission to pursue a greater understanding of their foe may be the first chance for real progress towards resolution. In characterization, I actually want to start with Rutile, who suddenly has an added dimension. On my first watch, I actually expected the episode to end with Fos taking up her position to await the Lunarians. That seemed like a nice stopping place to suggest the finale would go right into Fos having a completely different kind of encounter with the enemy. But instead, they are not showing up for some reason, and so I'm glad that we didn't leave off there. 
It would have been rather anticlimactic to start the next episode with Fos still standing watch and then nothing. What we end with instead is a segment involving Rutile which seems a non sequitur at first, showing her carving up what almost looks like a decorative candles or something else aesthetic and purpose. As we've noted though, the gems rarely go in for anything ostentatious, and Rutile least of all. We should know there is something else behind this behavior. Rutile's first interaction with Fos then both amends our expectations for Fos's Lunarian encounter and prompts her to explain the significance of Rutile's errand to the Cord Shore. Rutile used to have a partner, and was thus part of the fight along with most everyone else. Coincidentally, I made a comment back in episode 5 about how lithe Rutile seemed when she avoided tripping over the agate spine, and I wondered if she might be a capable fighter in her own right. Apparently, that was not a case of casually making everyone in the society acrobatic. She was a fighter, and since her partner was the second strongest after Bort, I would guess that she is no slouch herself. But she doesn't fight anymore, she acts as their doctor, and I wanted to focus on the reason it worked out that way. She didn't lose her partner to the moon, but to some kind of intrinsic flaw. Padparadsha has holes in her torso which apparently are large enough to render her unconscious in the same way the gems react when they lose their heads. It's not perfectly clear, but it seems temporary fittings can be fashioned to plug these gaps and let her be awake again. However, the impression I get is that there must be some kind of buildup of tolerance, and the types of gems that worked before have slowly stopped working, leaving Rutile searching for material with higher fidelity and fashioning them as exactly as she can. I'm guessing Rutile has met with much disappointment in this endeavor and that the scene where the new gems don't work has happened many times before. Suddenly, Rutile isn't just an insightful quasi-authority figure and village physician slash mad scientist who wants to take everything apart to see how it ticks. Rutile has a driving goal, an outcome she works toward and hopes toward as a background part of who she is. What's more, it's a goal she pursues for the sake of someone else. She didn't take up a new partner, but has dedicated what must be an excruciating amount of time to perfecting the art of restoring their gemstone form. The way Fos explains it makes me think that she did this before she became their de facto doctor. That is, she didn't become superlative at restoring them because it was her job. She had a very personal motivation. In that light, Rutile's suggestion back in episode 1 to Fos about finding a place for Cinnabar has a different subtext. Rutile well knows what it is to bend your effort and will for the good of someone else. This probably isn't something she puts forward lightly. Since Fos ran with the idea and has been changing dramatically in step with that focus, I'm left wondering how Rutile feels throughout everything we've seen happen. She should understand someone going to great lengths to effectively save another. Does this explain why she often seems sympathetic to Fos, or at least more patient with Fos? Why she casts Fos worrying glances? Maybe why she inspects her after she starts to join in the scouting? Maybe even why she objected to Fos joining the fight at all, knowing the potential disaster in the making? I rather like this extra bit of humanity for Rutile. She was already someone that the other gems felt they could confide in, between Fos's original conversation about Cinnabar, Euclase's observation about their connection to the world, and Yellow's frank discussion of why she shouldn't be someone held in high regard. 
They must all know that she is keeping her former partner close by and spending her free time trying to bring Padparasha back. Does that endear her to her fellow gems? I have to imagine that Rutil also carries a bit of ongoing sadness with her, to always be trying but rarely succeeding to wake her partner up. Perhaps this is where her usual lack of emotional affect originates. I am very, very curious to see how she acts next time when her partner is awake again, however long that may last. Like Rutil, I think we might have just expanded our understanding of some of Cinnabar's actions and words in the past. When Fos runs into Cinnabar this time, it's in such a state of confusion that she forgets to be reluctant or awkward. Like we said in Goals, Fos isn't really thinking in terms of finding something only Cinnabar can do right now because the shock of what Congo's words imply is blotting everything else out. When meeting Cinnabar then, it's something she can't help but want to ask about. It would be wrong to characterize Fos and Cinnabar's relationship as friends or partners or confidants or anything. Um, in fact, Cinnabar is in full Tsun mode when they meet, owing to how irritated she is with the mini Shiro dogging her heels. But each nevertheless feels comfortable being honest with the other in certain ways, and so it is to Cinnabar that Fos voices the unthinkable notion that crossed her mind only just before. Yet she cannot even get to the full question out before Cinnabar knows just what she will say. Moreover, Cinnabar lets her know that the others all suspect as much, and yet have decided to trust in Kongo. The thing I want to focus on, then, is when Fos puts the question back to her. Have even you decided just to go along with it? And Cinnabar says that she is still debating it. In other words, this is another way in which Cinnabar is an outsider to the rest of society. She doesn't make a judgment call on the other gem's decision, and yet we already know that there is some reason she doesn't feel she can trust every other gem. The way her very nature frightens them is enough to explain her self-imposed exile, but that didn't seem sufficient to explain her comment at the end of the premiere, right? She's the one who poses the danger to them. Why should she also then be untrusting? This revelation that Cinnabar is alone in her apprehension toward the situation may not explain it, but it's the first thing that strikes me as an understandable reason. If so, too, the way she resigned herself to being taken by the Lunarians doesn't seem quite as odd. If Congo has some unexplained history with them, then perhaps Lunarian captivity and society are different from what they assume. Or, if this history means that Congo is not as opposed to them as he acts, then maybe they're all doomed to be captured in time anyway, and so her defeatism comes from that direction. I also rather like how this exchange ends. After Cinnabar gives her answer, she asks what Fos is going to do, but she doesn't wait around for an answer herself. Rather, it's like Cinnabar knows this is the question has to address before anything else she does, and leaves her to consider it on her own. So then, let's talk about Fos. I spoke about her at length in goals, but wanted to point out a few additional things. I've suggested for a few videos now how much I expect some testing of Fos's characterization in this final arc, some crucible that will demonstrate the distance that she's traveled as a person since the series began. She has had fundamental assumptions about her life and society yanked out from beneath her this episode, and I rather expect her to continue facing this personal crisis into our finale. How the current Fos handles whatever is in store 
should be demonstrably different from how the foes of episode one would have handled it. What I want to focus on for this time, though, are some instances of Fos already demonstrating the ways that she has changed. One is in her confident resourcefulness. When Shiro reforms in the midst of the exhausted gems and panic sets in among them, it is Fos with the creative solution of the taunting, acrobatic decoy that she makes out of her arms. It's an evolution of the practice she got thanks to trying to shed the curiosity of the others in episode 9, which is a nice way to take a humorous bit and bring it back for something a little more pragmatic. But it seems pretty remarkable to me that it's Fos of all people who keeps her head, making and executing a plan to lure Shiro toward Kongo as Bort wanted to originally. Again, it's Fos, so it doesn't quite go to script, but she, as the quick-thinking ace in the hole, is a radical departure for their society. It's also not the robotic, emotionally suppressed Fos who dispatch Lunarians in Antarcticite's stead. This is normal Fos, rather delighting a bit in her own performance. The earlier fight where she got Alexandrite involved was a similar display of quick thinking. She didn't have any idea Alex would turn red and be an actual ringer of a swordsman. But once she understands that's the case, she is the one rescuing Bort for a change by thinking to snatch the others out of the air and line them up for Alex to strike down. These aren't just instances of Fos being an effective fighter, as we already saw that when she carried out the winter tasks. In these two fights, Fos is effectively the leader, the one who takes control of the situation with both plan and action. That is not a sentence I would have expected to say during the beginning of the series. Though I stated that she isn't the emotionally suppressed copy of Antarcticite anymore, Fos now has that even-killed example to invoke in moments when it is adventitious, such as when dealing with Congo while her mind is filled with rolling uncertainties. She will even imagine interacting with Antarcticite just before, in a dream-like bit similar to last episode's instance of Antarcticite sitting on the other end of the bench. Realizing that she likely knew there was some connection but kept her cool and trusted just the same has a calming effect on Fos. In the earlier part of the series, the only time Fos was calm or sedate was when she was feeling chastised or despondent or guilty. In winter, her calmness originated somewhat from her shell-shocked mental state, with probably a touch of survivor's guilt as well. This time, though, she assumes that state from a place of confidence and a desire for control of herself. She and Kongo are each affecting the same emotional register in this discussion. Fos is exercising the same dispassionate state that Kongo strives for all the time. Her confidence along the way from her wide variety of experience shows through in their exchange. For starters, she gives a glowing report on Bort and her time as partner. Fos put aside her original judgment of Bort in light of the experience she had. She was able to change her mind and assess the things Bort did well and how valuable her insight. The suggestion to Kongo that everyone should spend some time teamed up with Bort is a pretty glowing endorsement, and is a level of maturity that would have seemed out of place half a season ago. Fos has gained perspective from being in the fight herself. She appreciates what Bort brings to the table and is not so insecure or petty that she would say otherwise. That boost in confidence also factors into how she ends the conversation with Kongo. She tells him what she is going to do now. No asking, and seemingly no expectation that she would be questioned or denied. 
It's not the pleading Fos of earlier episodes who wants so badly to join the fight, and it's not the Fos who snuck around, hoping to ask forgiveness rather than permission. Fos gives her intention, and then sets out to follow through. That follow through, then, is the last thing I want to point out. The ability to set her mind to waiting on the Lunarians and, and standing in that spot for ten days is such a far cry from the Fos we used to know. The original Fos wanted to give up on the Encyclopedia task immediately, then could hardly hold her focus whenever she did work on it. She looked for help or shortcuts, leading her to Cinnabar in the first place, and then Daya, and then the misadventure with Ventricosis. But she started a change in winter when deciding to test herself, crawling when she could no longer walk, and letting Antarcticite prod her into continuing even when she realized she wasn't cut out for it. Now she can stand in place for days on end, apparently so stock still that butterflies alight on her without being disturbed. It would have seemed unthinkable to ask this level of dedication or concentration from the foes of episode 1, and woe to anyone who did so. But perhaps that is part of why Fos can bend her will with such focus. No one is asking this of her. Or put another way, she is asking it of herself. Kongo's suggestion that Fos's frankness might be an asset seems rather near the mark. Fos came off rude or worthless to the others due to her divergent behavior, but now that behavior might be better understood as a product of Fos being headstrong and self-deterministic. The things that she wants to do, join the fight, find a place for Cinnabar, and now this seeking after truth, she can be rather determined for their sake, rather hard to shake off. It's the things others ask of her or expect of her that she is a little flaky about. Fos does not prioritize social norms or the status quo, and she's capable of great tenacity when it's a path that she's chosen herself. These are just the qualities necessary to pursue whatever truth lies behind the secrets on their island. It's only just now that Fos has the confidence and capability to do so. Watching her get to this point is a large part of the story so far. My anticipation for Fos's next step is rather high. In worldbuilding, I will be rather brief, since a lot of this stuff comes up in other sections already. Um, I want to start by talking about the new gem we are about to meet, Podparasha. That name refers to a particular type of sapphire. Then I'll talk about the meaning of the actual name and theme. Um, sapphires are a type of corundum, a crystalline form of aluminum oxide which has a Mohs hardness of 9. So only our diamonds are harder, which makes sense considering the comment about her being the second strongest after Bort. Podparasha sapphires are extremely rare. They're pinkish-orange in color, um, and so Rutil having great difficulty finding a suitable match for the missing pieces is grounded in the reality of this gemstone's rarity. The reason the ruby that Fos spotted seems to work is pretty simple. Rubies are the other gem form of corundum. They're only different from a sapphire due to the presence of chromium instead of some other transition metal, and are thus also a 9 on the Mohs scale. I must say, I like that the unsuccessful birth of the ruby gem on the Cord Shore ended up coming back into the story. It had seemed to serve its purpose to illustrate how the gems usually come to be, and why Fos would look there in the first place. Fos taking note and breaking her watch to help Rutil locate it was another small way to characterize her 
that this little tie-in ended up providing. Another gem to talk about this time is alexandrite. Alexandrite is a type of chrysobarrel, which is an 8.5 on the Mohs hardness scale, as our little eye-catch animation will inform us. This means that they are the third hardest of the gems, behind diamonds and ruby sapphires. So when Alex turns out to be quite handy with a sword, well, she's just being true to her nature. That wasn't the biggest surprise, though. Rather, it was how she changed into Red Alex and went a little nuts after looking at the Lunarian Shiro. This, too, is rooted in the gemstone form from which she takes her name. Alexandrite gemstones are said to appear as an emerald by day and a ruby by night. This has to do with how our eyes perceive color and how the structure of this gem absorbs or reflects depending on the color of light. To oversimplify, our eyes are most sensitive to green light and least sensitive to red. When full-spectrum daylight shines on an alexandrite, we see it more greenish, and when there is a lower color temperature light, such as incandescent, it will appear more reddish. Well, moonlight is also a lower color temperature light, and so when these gemstones are looking at the moon, so to speak, they appear red rather than green which I guess effectively makes Alex the gem version of a werewolf. I had said I expected her to have some increased role in the story this episode due to the references of all of her Lunarian obsession. Now, this is not exactly what I expected, as I figured that all that careful record-keeping would come through in a clutch. Who knew that Alex herself was what would be so clutch? At least now, though, we can understand that her Lunarian preoccupation is related to some kind of berserker mania rather than an overzealous dedication to her role. It's evidently bad enough that Congo forbids her from looking at the Lunarians ordinarily, which also explains why she's not part of the fight. Making her their Lunarian hysterian, or whatever, now seems like Congo making lemonade out of lemons. It's probably not important enough to bring up in the final episode, but I am now kind of curious about what events led to this prohibition on her moon viewing. Lastly, in world building, I just want to highlight another instance of something I've brought up before, the gems having a sense of modesty for some reason. I pointed out in the past that it was odd for Daya to blush and freak out when Fos pops up between her legs, or for Euclase to feel the need to cover up her nakedness when Red Barrel enters unannounced. This episode adds another example when Shiro grabs Obsidian and lifts her up. She is upside down, and so the shorts of her uniform ride up and expose more of her thigh. Rather than fighting to get free, though, she concerns herself with trying to prevent this exposure in an action that seems more suited to a schoolgirl trying to keep her skirt down. She even accuses Shiro of being a creep for this gravity-assisted skirt flipping. But like with the earlier examples, I'm left wondering why she cares. In fact, why do the gems even know the word ecchi? They don't have gender or sexuality or even bodily functions. Where does this instinctual modesty come from? As mentioned before, it's not the only example of things which seem incongruent within gem society. Um, I talked about the school-like structure of things two episodes ago, right down to having summer and winter uniforms. Likewise, with the way they powder themselves to create the impression of skin instead of going around in their natural gemstone appearance. They even leave their fingernails and hair unpowdered, making them look even more human-like. 
Now you could explain away the clothes and the powder and the school structure as social norms, even if the origin is inscrutable. But the modesty seems innate. It strikes me that the gems subconsciously want to be more human-like and have some human-like impulses even without knowing what humans are. It's perhaps the best evidence for Ventricosis's story about humans being split into bones, flesh, and soul. Some primeval memory of being human would go a long way toward explaining these oddities in gem society. I know I'm restating stuff here, but this example with obsidian was even more obvious than the past ones, so I just wanted to bring it up. In theme today, I want to start with two new entries that are more specific to this particular episode, uh, thematic patterns that help tie its various parts together. The first is a missing piece pattern. When we run into Cinnabar of this episode, it's because she is coming to civilization to return Bort's shoes and the fluffy creature that won't leave her alone. In reality, that creature is the missing piece of Shiro, the hand which was cut off in those first moments. Since it wasn't collected along with the rest, Shiro is still missing a hand when encountering Kongo, thus prompting the question which has turned Fosa's world upside down. But Cinnabar doesn't just come bearing the last bit of Shiro. She also has the missing piece of information that everyone else is aware of the link between Kongo and the Lunarians. Since she is undecided about simply accepting the situation, she is possibly the only person who would divulge this unspoken agreement between everyone else. So a literal, physical missing piece in the final Shiro puppy is accompanied by missing information that Fos may not have otherwise learned. That seems like it will repeat when it comes to Pod Parasha. She is also missing pieces, is also not whole like Shiro. Fos brought the last puppy back, allowing Shiro to pass on in peace, and she also brought Rutile to the ruby fragments which will allow Pod Parasha to reawaken. You might consider this a double example, as Rutile was looking for suitable missing pieces and Fos had the information she needed. Now that this gem, who practically knows everything, is waking up, it seems natural that she would have information that Fos needs, possibly the missing piece to make sense of what is going on between Kongo and the Lunarians, and perhaps other secrets like humanity. The other pattern I wanted to visit also concerns revelations for our characters, and that is appearances are deceiving. The relationship between Kongo and the Lunarians that we were just talking about is obviously not how it appeared to Fos, and perhaps not how Kongo wants it to appear. There is a mask over the reality that confuses initial impressions. The same turned out to be true about Alexandrite. Not only is she a capable battle maniac instead of just an obsessive Lunarian researcher, her actual appearance changes when the truth comes out. The existence of Red Alex and the Congo-Lunarian link are truths that Fos did not grasp because their appearance led her to the wrong conclusion. The same turns out to be true of Shiro, who is not some elite Lunarian warrior come to finish the job, but is apparently Congo's pet doggy. It's not until sliced down into tiny pieces that its appearance matches up with its essence. The sniffing behavior last episode, which gave Shiro the impression of a predatory beast, was actually an estranged pet searching for the scent of its master. In fact, the whole ordeal with Shiro could be chalked up to this appearances are deceiving pattern. Because of the double sunspot entrance, it looked like another Lunarian attack, 
leading Bort to strike first by cutting off Shiro's hand. But now that we know the truth, that might have been what incited the whole crisis. Maybe if Bort hadn't attacked Shiro, then Shiro wouldn't have been aggressive towards them. The entire fight now seems like a wounded animal lashing out, rather than a sophisticated escalation of warfare. Bort couldn't bring herself to swing at Shiro once reduced to fluffy puppy size. Had that been the way Shiro appeared when coming through the gate, maybe we wouldn't have had any crisis at all. Now while all those are examples from within this episode, and the main reason I bring it up, I think you can go backwards with this idea to look at other parts of the series. Part of the reason the mix-up with Shiro is understandable is the way the Lunarians started changing tactics, such that their usual outward appearance was a deception hiding new and surprising tactics. The relationship between Bort and Daya was not at all what it seemed, with each of them keeping up appearances actually counter to the way they really felt. Ventricosis pulls this off three times. Twice she is physically different than the way she appears, starting as a dumb giant snail, then shrinking to a much more aware and much smaller snail, but that also is not her true form, which she shifts into once returning into the ocean. She also turns out not to be the helpful mascot character, aiding Fos with a little comedy relief thrown in. Rather, she is putting on an act with the intention to betray the gems in exchange for her brother's freedom. She's not the only character who had an aspect of their personality obscured by the impression they make. I mentioned earlier how Bort had a side Fos had never been aware of due to how overwhelming the aggressive behavior had been from Fos's point of view. Fos also just happens to catch Antarcticite in the act of dropping her no-nonsense routine in order to have her yearly tradition with Congo. Daya appears as a sparkling diamond, but because she is brittle, in some ways she is quite weak. Yellow Diamond appears to everyone as this cool and confident older sister character, but in truth carries a lot of regret, and isn't even certain what she's doing. And of course, Cinnabar has such a tough front, and such a frightening power, yet turns out to be the lowest on the Moe's scale of anyone, and has a sensitive, vulnerable side that she lets Fos see. That is probably what starts the entire character arc of Fos. One could argue that the story has just been a succession of events where Fos learns how appearances can be deceiving. And that notion dovetails nicely into our next theme, the Buddhist lens. Buddhism is also concerned with striving to perceive the true nature of existence. The world as it appears is not the truth of it. We aren't rigid, fixed beings, but mutable and transient. The universe's actual state is impermanence. In fact, living in ignorance of the true nature of the world is one of the three poisons that I have mentioned in earlier videos, one of the things which perpetuates being caught in samsara and its cycle of suffering. Overcoming this ignorance is thus one of the steps on the way to enlightenment. If one reads Fos's character arc as paralleling the path to awakening in the Buddhist sense, then the repeated instances of Fos discovering the reality behind misleading appearances matches up rather nicely. One of the more obvious events in this episode that falls into our Buddhist section is the disappearance of Shiro. Once made whole by the final piece that Fos returns, Shiro sets down beside Kongo and dissolves into the air just as we've seen countless Unarians do before. 
Fosa's question to Congo about this suggests the dissolving mist usually presages a return to the moon, but Congo indicates it is not so. Shiro has found peace. I don't know the exact wording of what he's saying here, but my mind immediately goes to the idea that Shiro was escaping samsara, was leaving the cycle of death and rebirth. That may be the entire reason behind the trip to the gem's island in the first place, before Bort cut off the hand. If so, it again suggests Kongo is some kind of spiritual leader or god, metaphorically at least, but perhaps literally as well. And I will just come back to that. So while talking about Shiro, let's mention the whole splitting ordeal. It's clever how they portrayed this, but Shiro ended up being cut into 108 pieces. You can see Fos counting at the tail end of their efforts to catch and cage all the Shiro doggies, and she stops at 107. Yet we'll later see that there is one more with Cinnabar, totaling 108 altogether. Well, 108 is a number with a lot of symbolic significance throughout Asian cultural institutions, and Buddhism is no exception. It can stand for the whole of existence, multiplying the 27 constellations of Vedic tradition times the four cardinal directions, the universe itself. Or it can stand for the whole of possible sensory experiences for an individual, with the formula of six senses times internal and external sources, times being either pleasant, painful, or neutral, and all of those sensations, past, present, and future. Also, Buddhist temples in Japan will specifically toll their bells 108 times to end the year, representing the 108 temptations one must overcome to achieve nirvana. Many temples will also have 108 steps leading to them, if the location allows. Uh, there are also 108 regular beads in a string of mala, or prayer beads, used somewhat like a Catholic rosary, letting a practitioner keep track of a recitation of 108 mantras. There are other instances of its occurrence and significance, but I think that's enough to illustrate the point. The 108 divisions of Shiro is not an arbitrary choice. Bringing all of them together again before being able to pass on could signify different things with respect to that 108 number, depending on which symbolic meaning you consider. Now then, to revisit the possible significance of Shiro seeking out Kongo before vanishing into mist. It occurred to me when first kind of researching Buddhism for this that Kongo could have another symbolic, or possibly even literal meaning, but I've been hoping for an episode with a better example, and Shiro's passing seems close enough. I want to float the idea that Kongo either is, or is meant to represent, the person of Maitreya Buddha. This will be a very truncated explanation, but basically, in some traditions, the current Buddha, Gotama Buddha, is simply one in a succession of Buddhas who will bring the Dharma to this terrestrial realm to guide others. Maitreya Buddha is a bodhisattva who is basically waiting in the wings to be the next Buddha for this realm. The trigger for this to occur is the current Buddha's teachings becoming largely forgotten. The nature of this depends on the tradition, but there is one that I think is worth mentioning. The Buddha once delivered something called the Sermon of the Seven Sons. In brief, it was a story about the end of the world, in which progressively more destructive suns appeared in the sky until finally the world is consumed by inferno. 
Certainly, having every human destroyed would qualify as the Buddha's teachings being forgotten, and so this destruction by fire is followed by a renewal and a repopulating of the realms into which Maitreya Buddha would eventually be born, to deliver the Dharma and gain enlightenment in the same manner as Gotama Buddha before him. Now, a story about seven suns destroying Earth should sound not too far distant from our series mythology of six moons destroying the same, and while I think both instances are probably metaphoric, there's a good chance each is referencing the same end-of-the-world events. After all, the world of our gems was repopulated by the bones, flesh, and soul division of humanity, and so that suggests that a figure like Maitreya Buddha should show up at some point as well. If Kongo is that literally, then it explains exactly why he would know of humans and the traditions that all of the gems emulate, but I am not sure that much of anything in these Buddhist corollaries is meant literally. Um, it is actually rather on-brand for every similarity to be representative. One thing to mention, though, before leaving this point, is the association of Maitreya Buddha and apocalyptic mysteries or apocalyptic sects. As a figure that would feature prominently in some new, renewed world, traditions or predictions concerned with the future will naturally coalesce around him. Interestingly, if you remember, one of the ideas I floated about Kongo earlier in the series was whether he might be an anthropomorphization of Apocalypse, specifically wondering about the story of the six moons that we got in episode two, because it is his voice that is telling us that story. You pair that with the end of his dream, when all the Lunarians are gathered around him, there might be something to it. Lastly, for the Buddhist lens, I want to return to our upcoming new character, Padparadsha. I skipped her name's meaning before, but I did mention that Padparadsha sapphires are pinkish-orange. To elaborate on that, that doesn't mean a uniform light reddish color, like you might imagine a completely blue sapphire or a completely red ruby. Instead, some Padparadsha sapphires transition from more pink-like to more orange-like inside the same gem, in the same way that the petals of a flower might shift from one color to another as you trace from their center out towards their tips. Well, Padparadsha literally means lotus color. Lotus blossoms are pinkish, but their centers are yellowish to orange. The name is basically exactly what it says on the label. So, Rutil's sleeping partner bears the name of the very sacred flower that we've already noted showing up in our story. What's more, she seems poised to bring a kind of enlightenment into the story with whatever knowledge she possesses that makes Fos think of her as someone who practically knows everything, in case we didn't have enough reason to anticipate what the finale has in store. The last theme I want to mention, albeit briefly, is metamorphosis. And briefly, because between my long description of Fosa's new goal, how she got to that point, and the new thematic patterns already discussed, I think I've said everything that would otherwise go into this section. Thus, I instead draw your attention to Fosa's predicament just before Rutil rouses her from her watch. She is completely swarmed by butterflies. It's come up before, but the life cycle of butterflies makes them such an obvious symbol of metamorphosis that I almost feel silly pointing it out. However, I do want to go back to the first time this happened. 
In episode one, a butterfly alights on Phos during her second conversation with Cinnabar, the one in which Cinnabar reveals she is hoping to be captured, and Phos vows to find something she can do in their society. It's such a key moment for Phos, and really kickstarts all the other transformations we've seen. Having a butterfly in the scene that even Phos notices clearly marks the beginning of said journey. Now we have a much different Phos, someone on the other side of a long metamorphosis both internally and externally. She is potentially poised on the brink of learning something that will shake up her whole world and that of others, and that becomes the choice of moments to swarm her with this symbol of transformation. Not the one butterfly signaling the beginning, but a whole kaleidoscope. Perhaps this increase in number is meant to parallel Fos's own increase as a well-rounded person, or perhaps it is signaling an even bigger metamorphosis looming on Fos's horizon. Or it could easily be both. I don't think it's arbitrary though, so I wanted to touch on it before we leave theme. So last time in What to Watch For, there was of course the cliffhanger and the way it resolved. Um, I also wanted to understand why this Lunarian was so different from the others, and left off trying to speculate about it because I felt I had so little information. For the best, I think, as I never would have gotten close to guessing that it was just a big soul puppy. Related to that, I talked about the role Congo might play in this episode. Verbatim, I suggested that Congo being part of the solution potentially undermines the tension of whatever climax we are building toward. That was a true statement, but rather than it being an unfortunate development, the deflating of the tension was entirely the point. The real gotcha of this episode is why the situation would instantly become less tense when Congo arrived on the scene. For once, his overpowering abilities have nothing to do with resolving the crisis. I wondered if we would see more progress on the Bort-Dia dynamic, but that didn't happen as they kept Daya off stage, save for one little bit of humor. But since she and Bort are still around, and Fos is off on her own new mission, they will have an opportunity to work on their relationship even if we aren't watching. I also wondered what Fos was doing during the entire last part of last episode, when Daya was fighting and Bort was searching, but it turns out basically nothing except running around with Alex. It's not clear if she was trying to wake Kongo before getting interrupted or not, um, if that half of Shiro had simply found Kongo before finding Fos, this whole episode might have gone a different direction. Speaking of different directions, what to watch for next time. With one episode left in the adaptation so far, there are some ongoing aspects of the series that we cannot expect to be resolved, and it's unlikely that they will all even be mentioned. Finding a place to end a season requires choosing at least one of these ongoing narrative or thematic or character threads and bringing it to a point that will give the audience a sense of completion, even if it's just a milestone rather than the final destination. There should be some feeling that a chapter in the story has closed. However, as we have strong goal-based characters, it would make little sense to even suggest that the plot is wrapping up. Rather, finding an obvious pivot point for narrative or character going forward will both give a nice place to pause and an enticement towards the story's future. If that is coupled with a thematic argument, then all the better. All of that is a long way of saying that there are sure to be parts of the story so far which don't even get a mention in the finale, because it's more important to spend time toward that impression of a closing chapter. 
So what we'll watch for is which elements get set aside, as it implies they are not at a point in the story where we can get even a momentary resolution. Since Fos is the only one shaken by this episode, there isn't much to watch for as far as how the rest of the gym society will internalize this whole thing with Shiro. Rather, I'm interested in watching how Fos deals with the society which suspected the unthinkable all along. Helping Rutil out at the end at least answers whether or not she would be hostile or indifferent to her fellow gems, but I'm curious if she will adopt some of Cinnabar's caginess going forward. Um, I want to watch for how Kongo handles Fosa's new goal of finding the truth. We already mentioned that he does not make any suggestion as to what Fos should do now, but were Fos to begin straying towards things he has kept secret, such as humans, will he stop taking such a passive role? To bring it up again, one thing I really want to see is how Rutil reacts to her partner being awake. Having someone that she was willing to labor for all this time is a pretty interesting development for Rutil, who is one of the few characters with consistent screen time. She was already one of the more complex gems, and this just bolstered that characterization further. I also want to see what kind of personality makes a good match for Rutil at all. How will Podparasha be characterized? It's obvious, of course, but I also want to see Podparasha and what she'll do or say that is worth the spotlight that she is under due to the episode structure. We're watching for how Fos's pursuit of the truth will take its next step, and the positioning of the reawakening strongly suggests the two will tie in. Uh, it rather heavily influences how I would speculate about the finale, so let us move on to our final section. So as I was just saying, a new gem who knows everything popping up just as Fos is determined to seek understanding is too synergistic to ignore. I like the way it builds my anticipation for the finale, and I like the implication that Fos's long but mostly subconscious quest for the truth might be advanced in a satisfying way as part of the season finale. However, as much as I like how this sets me up as an audience member, it gives me some real problems for this part of our video. I said last time that I thought I would have a lot to speculate about this next episode, since it was really my last chance to do so. Had this episode ended with Fos standing on the edge of land, awaiting Lunarians, I probably would have had a lot more to say. Leaving off like that would strongly imply they were a big part of the finale. While the series has used bait-and-switch with the cliffhangers before, I'm sure they realize the finale is the wrong time to go for the anticlimactic misdirection. Since that is not how the episode actually ends, it makes me wonder if the Lunarians will show at all. As was implied by the last scene, the Lunarians may be in no position to return for the present. Fos may have to go to them for answers, if such a thing is even possible. We've been given pretty scant details about how the Sunspot travel works, or what even happens to the Lunarians who seem to be struck down, but the fact that the gems as captives can make the journey to the moon means that some way exists. Bringing Ventricosis and Oculiots down from the moon also means the reverse is true, but in neither of those appearances do we see the usual Sunspot prelude so perhaps there are some Lunarian-only methods to their travel system. The closest we got to seeing how that might work was when Amethyst was almost captured, as we saw the platform begin to close up like a flower furling its petals overnight. 
That's quite different from Antarcticide's capture, where it simply sped away from Phos with all due haste, disappearing into the atmosphere at a great distance. It's a tantalizing sample of world-building details. It's enough for us to know there is something unusual about it, but not enough to draw a firm conclusion. Since I am now rather uncertain about the status of the Lunarians, what else is there to speculate about? Podparadsha's reawakening has a lot of potential ways it can throw us a curve, but we are completely in the dark about which direction is suggested, other than she probably has information Fos will be interested to learn. We have no idea what kind of character she even is. I confess that I am actually not in love with there being no mention of Rutil having a partner until the moment that the surprise character is dropped into the story. Putting new characters on stage at regular intervals is part of the pattern of the series, which I have mentioned a lot, but there was no preamble to this at all. If we'd seen Rutil working on shaping fragments of gems as some unexplained scene in earlier episodes, then that would have been enough to let us know that Rutil is working on something that will matter later on. Or, if it had simply been brought up that Rutil used to have a partner, we would naturally assume that said partner must be a captive on the moon. Then the surprise of Podparaj's situation would contain an element of payoff as we connected it back to our earlier assumption. Anyway, I like the setup for going into the finale, but the way it comes from left field makes me feel helpless when trying to speculate. If they're going to drop a character into the story wholesale like this at such a late stage, especially when there were subtle ways to have prepared us, then what else are they willing to spring on us at the last moment? So I will speculate a few things, but just know that I am doing so with no confidence at all. Starting with Padparasha and what she may impart, I previously pointed out that it seemed deliberate to have Yellow Diamond and Rutil be present when Fos uttered the word humans to Congo. Yellow is the oldest, and Rutil seemed the most learned, so for neither of them to recognize the word implies that none of the other gems would have either. But now we have this revelation of someone who might be even more knowledgeable than Rutil, and who is almost as old as Yellow. Fos still struggles to remember the details of her trip into the sea, but if she does recall anything about humans, perhaps the word will mean something to Pod Paradsha. We know that Fos is now seeking to understand more about the Lunarians, and whatever link exists between them and Congo. However, we actually have knowledge that Fos does not. Congo's dream during his meditation, the interaction between him and those that waylaid him when Antarcticite was taken, and the pity he seems to feel towards the ones he dispatches after the fight with Amethyst. And of course, he clearly knows what the word humans means and is shaken by it, something that the others missed. Thus, there is information Fos could learn next time that we have already seen. However, it seems much more appropriate to a finale that she would learn something that we also do not know. Something to do with humans would be a great tie-in to the adventure with the Admirabilis, so I am secretly hoping there is at least that. Um, we don't know the fate of humanity, or why Congo would know about them, or why he wouldn't know the gems to know about them, or why the gems emulate so many aspects of humans if they are ignorant of their existence. And those are just the things we know that we are missing. Beyond the details of humanity, just this episode we got examples of two things Fos did not know but the other gems did. So-called Red Alex, and the fact that all the others already suspected Congo of having link to the Lunarians. 
I feel it's safe to say that Fosa's ignorance does not stop there, but since her ignorance is also our ignorance, there are all manner of assumptions we have about their society which could be overturned next time. Or assumptions about the Lunarians. I'm not sure if this is the kind of thing that would even come up next episode, but I've been thinking about the oddity of the hook grenades that were made from pink fluorite. As I said then, the design assumes that bits of her will be lost, and that seemed counter to the idea that the Lunarians are greedy to collect all of our gems for adornment. Using arrowheads made from Heliodor and jaws made from sapphire at least had a bit of a risk-reward, but even if the grenades are a success, you are guaranteed to lose something. Thus, I will speculate that the Lunarians wanting to gather all the gems isn't the complete story. It was presented as their goal, and the hunting of the gems as the means toward it, but I've been wondering if the collecting of the gems may itself be a means. Since the link with Congo has come up several times, and since it's such a significant reveal for Fos, I'm imagining that what the Lunarians really want concerns Congo. Now that we know Congo had a pet Lunarian, basically, it seems plausible that he once lived among them. Maybe on the moon, maybe not, that is another bit of history that is just a big blank space. But the yearning way they reach for him at times gives me the impression of people who want to be reunited with him, to have him restored to them. In that light, maybe capturing the gems isn't about the gems, but about Congo. Maybe they want to take away his reason for being on that island. The gems can't actually be killed, and if you break them apart, the others will just put them back together. If you want to reduce their number, you have to kidnap them. You don't even need to keep all of them, since they go unconscious when they lose certain parts. In that light, giving up pieces of fluorite or heliodor or sapphire to try to whittle down the entire gem population doesn't seem so strange. They do seem to like the gems, that part isn't made up, but it may be an accessory goal rather than what really drives them. Lastly, and this may just be my own wishful thinking, but I want to speculate that Fos and Cinnabar have another chat that squares Fos's new quest for truth with her goal of finding a place for Cinnabar. If Fos learns something surprising in the earlier parts of the episode, then she will likely want to have a conversation with someone about whatever uncertainties or emotions it stokes within her. As noted this time, Cinnabar and Fos can be honest with one another at times in ways they would not share with the other gems. Having some kind of shared status update to Fos's promise would give some satisfaction to that little narrative thread without actually completing it. That is all then. Reminder that I am going to be viewing episode 12 for the first time live on stream on my Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash nearlyonred, on the date and time mentioned at the beginning of this video and detailed in the description. That does not take the place of the analysis video for the 12th episode, that will still come out, it's just how I wanted to celebrate reaching the end of the long overdue backlog. I will see you again before too long, either there or here. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle, script, performance, and editing by Theta. 
Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.